So it's a difference between being data-driven. So we'll just, the handout dynamometer says you're 10% weaker, so I won't do anything with you. That's that's not true, right? We all know that's not true. And, the, uh, and being data-informed. So incorporating data into your clinical reasoning doesn't replace it, but it enriches it. You're still making a clinical reasoning process decision. You're still thinking about what what's the best to do with your athlete. Now that quantitative process that brings into our quality that quantitative component that becomes part of our qualitative process, I think, is absolutely invaluable. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast, we have a guest I've wanted to get on for a while, and it's a little bit of controversy around the two systematic uh, review meta-analyses that has brought us together. However, this episode is much more than just discussing Nordics. We have a big chat around injury prevention, um, injury risk, understanding injury risk, and some of the monitoring, daily monitoring that goes in uh, into the Irish rugby program to inform any interventions that players may need to essentially ensure they get out on the pitch on a daily basis in as best shape as possible. So we're diving into the intricacies of certain tests, certain benchmarks that are used, what's you what's done off the back of those exercises and data. So a really, really interesting chat with Nickel. And like I say, much more than just a chat around the controversies around Nordic. So it's an episode I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military, and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform, Smarterbase, is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com 
to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nickel. Nickel Van Dyke, welcome to the Pace of Performance podcast. It's been a long time. Thanks. Yeah, it feels like I, I, I have been here before, but I, I realize I haven't. So it's great to be on finally and appreciate, uh, appreciate the invitation. My pleasure. Anyone who doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a bit of a brief summary of your background and then finish off by telling us what you do at the IRFU? Sure, yeah. So I'm uh, a physiotherapist by trade. Uh, I studied at Stellenbosch University and then um, got the opportunity after working for a while at the Sports Science Institute um, of South Africa to, to go over to Qatar. So the Aspidal Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Hospital and I was really privileged to to be there for seven years and, and while I was there working as a clinician the opportunity to do my PhD which looked at risk factors for hamstring injuries in football players. Um, wonderful team of people working at Aspidar, still um, some incredible people that's there and uh, I had the privilege of working with um, Professor Ruald Barr who was a co-supervisor to Eric Whitfram, my main supervisor and just wonderful mentorship but just Great folks all around. Rod White, the Athol Thompson, Claire Ardern was there uh, while we were working. Andrea Mosler, wonderful leaders and mentors uh, for me to learn from, uh, um, as well as all my cl- uh, clinical staff uh, uh, colleagues. You know, it was a really great environment. So it's really, really great to to experience that. Uh, and we're looking forward to the the Football World Cup at the end of the year in in Doha. I think it's going to be a phenomenal uh, showcase. Um, I think after two years as well of, of not doing much and not being able to go anywhere, it's, it's a good time to hopefully have crowds in the stands. Um, and then uh, I switched over or, or came over to Dublin at the end of 2019, uh, where I'm the medical research lead for the Irish Rugby Football Union and oversee uh, our research activity as well as uh, um, performance reporting, injury surveillance uh, around uh, all our professional players. So real privilege to be working um, at the pointy end uh, of performance now um, in the sport that I started in. So really, really enjoy being back in rugby and, and being part of the rugby fraternity again. I know it's what you've, seems like, it sounds like you've always done, but how important is it from a, from a research perspective that you are, like you say, still at the pointy end and help that, use that to inform what you do research-wise? Yeah, we've we've talked about this uh, before. You know, I I think um, it's important to remember uh, Stephen Covey's quote uh, comes to mind, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and so for for athletes, I would argue across any level of participation, it really is about performing, about being able to participate to your to your um, maximal efforts, and so we really we uh, we really see it that way, and to be able to again answer really relevant questions to athletes' health, athletes' performance, uh, to what matters to the players, um, to answer the questions that will help us uh, um, improve those processes also surrounding the players, I think is a, is, a, is a really valuable learning experience again. And I think there's a shift now towards uh, more collaboration or more uh, um, um, a greater a greater appreciation for doing uh, these kinds of research projects or or the application or applied research um, uh, in the field. The first thing I want to kick off the chat with Nicole is around uh, injury screening. Now I watched a UKCA presentation from Craig Ranson, who's got experience in athletics, cricket, rugby, I think. 
and it was quite a while ago, so it's probably 2015, 2016. And he presented on his previous experience in uh, injury screening and finished off with, well, we know these what the risk factors are. So why is anyone doing this screening anyway? We've, we've got the research out there. And he, I think he actually said that he would do, uh, I think, three basic screens or four based on what he knew from the research. And didn't have to do much digging because it was there. We knew it anyway. Now, what's your thoughts on that? And secondly, how would you go about, or how have you gone, go, gone about building uh, an injury, injury screening protocol uh, with the IRFU? Um, yeah, well, that's, these are fair points, right? Uh, uh, we do know what risk factors are, are important to, to concentrate on. When we're doing screening, I mean, let's, let's talk about that first, maybe, and, and why are we screening? What, what is the purpose of, of a screening tool? Um, in general medicine, screening is there to identify a population at risk. So we're trying to separate out, uh, in sports medicine talk, the guys who are going to get injured or at a very high risk of injury to the guys who are not. And then hopefully you have an intervention for that high-risk group that drives down their, uh, their risk of injury or illness. So let's take breast cancer, right? So we have really good process now with mammographies. I know there are some criticisms around around the test, but in general, like it identifies uh, women who are at high risk and we can then intervene, right? Whether that's a mastectomy or treatment. Now, the cost of that intervention is quite high. So we need that screening tool to be very effective and accurate. Um, and that's more or less what we have. For us, the cost of our intervention usually is... Well, it usually isn't harmful, and it's something we can apply rather rather simply. It's not always easy to do, but it's rather simple interventions. We can we can use Nordex as an example if you want. And so, <laughs> so I think for us, we've shifted. At least that's my experience. From once-off time points, high-risk athlete screening, so identifying that one athlete in 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 the team that will get injured, to monitoring. Uh, and, and what that looks like in a risk management program. So for me, our screening process is really part of like a four-step uh, program that's really well described by Roald Barr and Andy McIntosh. Like it builds on the work that Colin Fuller did when he brought all the industry knowledge to sports and exercise medicine. But so the first, the first question is, what are the risks in my team? What do I know are baseline risks playing rugby at this level? And so that already gives you some idea of what to pay attention to. Now, if you have an injury surveillance program like we do, we can be a little bit more specific about that. We can look for trends as they develop over seasons, over time, to see where we need to intervene and be a little bit more proactive. So it looks like hamstrings are okay, but calves are a bigger problem now, for instance. And we know that we can pay attention, or it helps us to, to understand what to pay attention to. Then, so that's step one. Step two is like, how does that change over the season? So can I understand the work that I'm going to do, the training, the matches, the competitions I'm involved in, and how that potentially will alter risk as a player moves through the season? Which players will be exposed to a large amount uh, of, of that play and which would not be? Right? And how do, I, how do I manage that? How, do we, how are we protecting players from uh, with that? In rugby, we, we, there's certainly lots of work now being done. World Rugby last year released guidelines on contact uh, uh, during during training and trying to really show that we can potentially understand how these factors influence the risk for injury, but also performance. And so, again, keeping that main thing the main thing, 
The third question, this is the most common one, is can I identify athletes at higher or lower risk of injury? Now, for us, that's shifted more to monitoring. So we we want to have robust players, and we want that, we define that within the IRFU as uh, the potential to uh, participate in training and matches with maximal efforts. So this is like really good work being done by Nick Winkleman and Phil Glasgow with our with our whole team involved. And so instead of doing a once-off screening test at the beginning or in the middle of the season, what we're doing now is um, more of a monitoring process. So on a training day, a player would do a wellness screening, uh, which would include pretty much what you would expect from wellness, sleep, nutrition, uh, stress, soreness, stiffness. Based on those scores, they'll do an active component. So, uh, And again, we've refined ours. I, I think it'll be different for different teams depending on their own levels of risk, but uh, we certainly include the, the good old knee-to-wall, sit-and-reach, groin squeezes. Um, and the players are doing this themselves. So they're autonomous in this process. But we use that information then to build their movement preparation for the training session they're going to be involved in. So also we take into account a player's history. So if they've come back from a recent injury, if they've had an old niggle for a very long time, they might get a little bit of work around that to make sure that we're 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 protecting them from whatever influence that could have. So there's lots of information, lots of data being collected, but that informs that process where we're actively creating a, a, a program for each individual player so that they're ready for the session they're going to engage in. Um, and then I think the last question is, is there players that you need to do something different with? Now, that again, I think we've probably moved away a little bit from um, from a blanket uh, approach to every single player in the team does this. Uh, there are, of course, uh, um, programs for, for the players, but that's really linked to their performance. So a lot of those activities, even Nordics, would be linked to what we want them to be able to do and how that might influence their performance. Um, on an individual basis, uh, um, if, if there are players that are coming back from a period of deactivity for whatever reason, uh, how can we expose them to the right amount of high-speed running, whatever that may be, so that we know they're getting back to where they need to be? Uh, Andy Well, our data scientist, has visualized a lot of that data for us. So we can see and track really neatly now how a player is doing over a season. And we know what their match expectations would be. So that helps us to understand where we want them, where we want to, them to get to. And then uh, as Phil would, would say, like, can you live there? Can you stay there? Uh, we had this kind of strange natural experiment after COVID. We had that big interruption in the 2019-20 uh, season towards the end of that. Uh, came back after that really good job from athletic performance guys, getting the guys back to their match match level expectations. And then we just finished a lot of games, competitions ran into each other, and uh, our players were just asked to really stay at that performance level for a long time. But for us, that seems to have been a benefit. I think that there's been like this interesting benefit from having them that, that prolonged exposure, not without any consequences, and certainly we've we've tried to minimize the risk, but there's been some benefit of that exposure, and, and we see that in the performance of, of our teams now, which is really, really nice. So I think that the, the, those are the four steps uh, that we follow, and that's how the screening fits within that. So it's really part of a bigger process, and it's really become individualized. So we're giving each player what they need to really partic- participate with maximal efforts. So based on the based on the wellness, what happens during the wellness that triggers <clears throat> other that triggers them three the knee to wall, the sit and reach, and the groin squeeze plus any individual work that needs to be done within them. 
test, knee to walls, sit and reach, and groin squeeze. Is there individual thresholds in terms of what triggers the next thing? What triggers the intervention? Yeah, that's a good question. So we we kind of well we generally look at the standard, a standard deviation off a player's average or mean, and that that's usually a fair indication, right? If you think about what standard deviations mean, it means that you're seventy percent of the time you're going to be in that space. So then there's a third of the time that you might not be. So if you, so if you're moving out of that space, then we want to pay attention. Um, I should I should mention this. Like this is probably the the greatest gift Rod Whiteley. Um, gave me among the many, um, uh, including how to roast coffee beans in a bread maker, which I haven't quite <laughs> got down yet. But incorporating data, or w- what do you do with data, right? I mean, we're certainly not in a computer says no kind of scenario. So it's a difference between being data driven. So we'll just, the handle dynamometer says you're 10% weaker, so I won't do anything with you. That's that's not true, right? We all know that's not true. And, the, uh, and being data informed. So incorporating data into your clinical reasoning doesn't replace it, but it enriches it. You're still making a clinical reasoning process decision. You're still thinking about what, what's the best to do with your athlete. Now, that quantitative process that brings into our quality, that quantitative component that becomes part of our qualitative process, I think, is absolutely invaluable for us to deliver to the athlete what they actually need, or what we need to give to them during rehab, during prehab, uh, in our prevention efforts, in our return to sport efforts, and also make sure that the service we're delivering is optimal. So, so I really, I really see it that way, and that that's kind of our approach as well. With that knee to walls in reach and groin squeeze, that you obviously identified those three as the staple for rugby union. Would they be the staple for other running based sports as well, or would you go around about a different process to identify what those those tests would be? Yeah, the, the the most well-known process is the functional movement screen that, that's been used widely across multiple sports, right? We played around with that at Aspitar a ton, and it just, it's too insensitive as a, as a gross, it's very gross, right, as a measure. And so you need to really look at the subsections of that. Um, I, I, I think this predates my, um, my participation or, or um, uh, arrival at the IRFU, but there has been other tests that's has formed part of this battery over time uh, that we've just, with experience, with looking at the data, gone, oh, that's actually not telling us much. So we'll exclude that. That, that's happened, that happened with our process at Aspitar as well. So I think you have to be reactive to what you're seeing. You have to be reflective about the different battery of tests you include and what that tells you. Now, each player might have an add-on or a slightly different um, um, test scenario or, or uh, battery. So there are individual, but but those are the main ones that we feel kind of gives us the most information of, of for, for what we're trying to do. Shoulder, of course, comes into rugby. You think a little bit about testing just internal rotation, uh, external rotation strength there. But um, by and large, it hasn't been that useful, but we still include it from time to time. So th- it does th- 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 it does shift around a bit, but those core tests uh, we found most useful. And that's also different across the four provinces. Not everybody uses uh, um, this test exactly the same, but uh, it's, it's, it's the core of what we do for sure. Would that alter based on your style of play and what is needed from a technical coach's point of view, or would that always be the same? Because that could potentially change risk factors? Yeah, there's, there's interesting work being done around playing position, playing style that could influence risk, right? 
Um, uh, for, for us, I, I think those are pretty core basic movement screens, right? So, or strength screens. So I think that fits. But um, with the appreciation of what a group of players, so different positions uh, in team sports or an individual player um, playing a certain way might require, um, you know, tennis is such an easy example to think of really unique and different playing styles that's, they're, and they're all trying to max out their kinetic energy through the through the chain, right? So um, there's not only there's not one way to get there, but I think it is an appreciation of the individual for sure, or then different groups. So for instance, uh, well, let's take hamstring injuries in, in rugby. Matt Bourne that, uh, did a study with the Nord Board or, or, or Nordic Hamstring Exercise ages ago, and he's he's probably the only study that's found a link between uh, symmetry. Um, uh, it hasn't been found in football at all. So in football, it's absolute strength. In in math study, it was symmetry. Now you can think about rugby and what especially the forwards have to do when they're scrum scrummaging, when they're on the ground grappling. There is probably a more a greater need for symmetry and being able to push great power uh, through both legs than there is, for instance, in football. Now I say that carefully, but <laughs> I, I think that's a fair that's a fair assumption, right? So, so those little things I think are, are you're able to to look for. Symmetry is a tricky one as well. Um, I think we've moved away from the ten percent rule, luckily. Um, so, but but having those baseline measures, having a profile for a player, having moved your risk factor from screening to monitoring, you're actually able to look for those deviations. You're not necessarily looking. Uh, for an absolute number, you're looking for a change. And uh, if the change is significant enough with all the other bits of information you have, then you know, you're know you able to intervene in a meaningful way. Um, and then also to see what the reaction is towards that, right? So how the player reacts to the intervention will tell you whether that's what you need to know in terms of do we keep going, do we change it again? So it's a really reactive process um, and there's lots of shared decision-making in this model. Where did that ten percent come from? I don't know. It's easy. <laughs> I reckon. It's probably like That's a really easy. Number, Just by yeah. chance. Ten percent. Yeah. Ten percent works. Yeah. So I, I, I actually don't know the history of it, but um, I reckon it's just uh, we we like things that are easy, right? So it's the same with cutoffs. Um, uh, we've talked about that before too. But cutoffs are are great, right? So if you're above three hundred newtons on the on the Nord board, like you're absolutely grand. Nothing will ever happen to you. And if you're below, then you know you're in real trouble. And as you know, like 299 and 301 is pretty close. So you know, using cutoffs are are are, are tricky because we create these these potentially um, 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 false positive uh, boxes that that players go into, or or false negative, for that matter, and they don't really fit. Um, cutoffs. Uh, I think the way we're establishing them now is like they come from like World War II history, right? So receiver-operator curves is what we use to determine them, and it was the the radar, the the operator of a radar system that had to check whether the blip on the screen is like a plane or a bird or an actual missile, and so they developed a system to try and identify when how accurate they are. So you invert the sensitivity towards the specificity. Sorry, that's the other way around. And then you create an area, right, that you see. So how, how much do you capture within within those two metrics? And if we look at the cutoffs in sports health medicine, it's not great. Um, but the other problem is individual variability. So players won't always produce the same strength during a season, both limbs, depending on what we did yesterday, how they're feeling. And that's why I think having the monitoring wellness 
monitoring our wellness, so those few components that influences our, our movement uh, testing or screening, that creates a, 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 a preparation package or program for the player is su- such a useful way to approach this. Is that automated, by the way? We record the data. Yeah, so um, so there's a, um, it's a it's a digital system uh, that feeds back into a, a visualization for the practitioners, and they so it's real time, right? Like that the plant that the guys are looking at this. Um, and uh, there might be a little uh, uh, pre-session discussion around certain players that we are aware of. And I think that's a good practice as well. Just good communication between the team saying, look, we're paying attention here. We need to. And look, we're still not like we're not uh, um, going to create a pers- uh, an environment where you have zero injuries. I think that's a false kind of um, um, dichotomy, right? So either you're performing at the highest level and you have zero injuries or you're performing terribly and you have zero, you have a lot of injuries. So they, they happen in parallel. So you could be at really high risk of injury and at your highest level of performance. And that's the risk we're trying to manage. That's the boundary we're trying to push, isn't it? Um, it's much more obvious in, in endurance sports. Uh, where in team sports, we kind of hide it a little bit in the skills component of it. And there's loads of little, little nooks with, that we can like go and, and, and bury stuff in. So you have to really know what to pay attention to. And I think that's the system we're trying to develop is really understanding what to pay attention to at the team level, but for the individual. So what, just going back to the cutoffs, and I, when I sent the, uh, the message over in terms of the things that I thought would be good to discuss, you've just quoted me with the, um, with the, the Nordics and the cutoff there. But is it, is, it, is it on the part of the researcher who has to be careful how they word certain things because i know from going around visiting football clubs and rugby clubs they use that use that cut off that you mentioned in in uh was it matt bourne or ryan timmons's paper as the kind of red line anything above that all good like you mentioned anything below that let's all let's all freak out or is it on the part of the practitioner who's obviously looking for some sort of guidance and looks to that and goes okay perfect Matt says that, or Ryan says that, let's hang our hat on it, or at least use it to inform what we're doing. Obviously, it's not one or the other. It's a little bit of both, as it always is. But do researchers have to be a little bit careful knowing that that's going to be the out, potential outcome? Yeah, I think that's a fair... Uh, there's responsibility either way. Uh, when you're reading papers, I think make sure that you're reading them accurately and try and... Uh, I think a really good way to approach this is so obviously a, a title of a paper or a topic of interest will, will catch your attention and then read the results first right I, I think that's a really good practice like skip over the introduction if you don't know how they did stuff if, if it's test you don't understand go and read the method so you understand how they did it but then read the results first and see if they make sense to you and then you know i mean if you're interested in their opinion then go read the discussion but but um, but I think that's a really good practice to to understand what a paper is really saying. Now, um, yeah, and, and then try and inf- think about how that influences your practice potentially. There's uh, there's absolutely no harm in using those as guidelines. But I think it's difficult when we sh- when we start to say, I mean, this probably happened a little bit with the acute chronic workload ratio, right? And uh, that's kind of been this this uh, dismantled now uh, to a degree. But uh, but nobody was saying, Tim Gabbard wasn't saying, look, one and a half, you know, is where you need to be really careful. 
of course you're going over that when you're, you're looking for performance. And of course, people will get injured on either side of that. So it was really trying to figure out how do we establish risk? And so, but we probably kind of like, went, oh, this is really easy. We'll implement this. And if we, if we get any closer to this, then we're in real trouble. So um, I think the other thing to, to really reflect on is um, understanding the difference between relative and absolute risk. So uh, relatively speaking, something might change quite significantly. But if your baseline for an injury is low, let's take ACLs, right? The, the number of ACLs, we, ACLs are actually like a really rare injury. Now, so if you, if you only see one a season, you know, it'll take something dramatic to, to actually increase that risk to even two. So, so um, we really have to understand that relative and absolute risk are different things. And we can talk about that a little bit more um, in a second, but uh, I think I, I have a feeling we're going to when we, we dig into Nordics, but um but that's another differentiation to, to be aware of. I probably should have asked this at the start, but when it comes to injury prevention, what's your overall philosophy? So, so I, that, um, what I mentioned there, the risk management program that Roald and, and Andy suggested, I, th- I think it's really now how I would approach it. It's, it's more about risk management than about prevention. Now, if we think again about general medicine, the, the easiest way of prevention in general medicine is the removal of exposure. So you just, you know, like we just tell everybody to stop smoking. We're not trying to figure out how many cigarettes you can smoke as an individual before you're in trouble or have a risk of disease. We just tell everybody to stop smoking. Now, we can't do that in sports medicine. You, uh, the exposure is literally the thing that you're, that you're participating in. So we can't remove exposure. In fact, we're willingly exposing you to the thing that, that, that's causing risk or potential harm. So what we're trying to do is figure out exactly how many cigarettes can you smoke before you tear your hamstring. And that's, like, that's, that's really, really tricky. So, um, so our, greatest, our, our tools are really broad interventions that's uh, um, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a broad level going to hopefully reduce your risk of injury, or like I mentioned, build these risk profiles for players. That's not easy to do, and how do you weight different information, right? Different bits of information, that, that's tricky. I, I acknowledge that. But I think once you build a profile for a player, you can start to, to adapt the different pieces and understand when someone's risk goes up significantly. And even then, the decision to remove them completely from exposure, oh, that's that's a big one, right? Like, when would you actually tell a player not to play for the risk of tearing their hamstring? Like, can you think of a scenario where you'd, you'd actually remove an elite Olympic sprinter from a 100-meter final? Like, you, you just wouldn't, right? Like, I mean, even if they tear their hamstring, they're probably going to be okay. So, um, um, in the long run, and, and then, there, of course, there are examples. Um, you know, the, the real public easy one is Michael Owen, who, who had that hamstring injury. It led to more injuries, it led to a knee. Like that, that one injury probably had this cascade of, of things that happened that, you know, you could argue potentially really short, cut short his career or influence it dramatically. So it can go wrong, and we are aware of that. And that's where I think it, it really becomes important to understand the different factors at play and make these decisions together so that we are not, we are not mindlessly, you know, it, it's, not, it's not performance at any cost. Right, of course not. But that is the main driver of these decisions, and and that is the difference between what we are trying to do in sports exercise medicine and general medicine. So I think there are injury prevention efforts that have been unbelievably successful, and they largely include rule changes. So 
not being able to lift your elbow when you jump in football or no spear tackles in rugby. They, they, uh, a lot of scrummaging rules and techniques, um, especially at age grade level, that have really made a massive impact on the number of catastrophic injuries we see. Um, and in concussion, we, we have good processes now to understand to, to um, manage these when they happen effectively. So uh, encourage everybody to appreciate the, the head injury assessment process and hopefully other sports will follow suit because I think that has been one of the rugby success stories, although it's, it's still not easy to implement, right? None of these are. So I think we need to really think about how we manage risk, how we build profiles for players and how that influences their ability to uh, um, perform or participate and also what the potential long-term effects can be and how we navigate those decisions around the team. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nickel. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the controversies around Nordics. Are they safe? Are they worth doing? Are they not worth doing? What should recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses mean for the decisions that coaches make? So really interesting, slightly controversial part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And now back to the interview with Nicole. I'm hoping this next question isn't that you don't think it's completely pointless and just conjecture and and uh, and meaningless. But in terms of the wording, injury prevention, 
Like, is that is that an issue within itself? Is that something that people should be moving away from using that word and trying to trying to change how they how they word something along those lines? And I'm thinking about I don't know technical coaches when things have been fed back using that word may give them a you know a, a feeling that zero is zero is where we're gonna where we're aiming and is realistic. Do you think that's a pointless thought or not? No, I mean words matter for sure, and I think it's uh, it's important that we think about the messages we've created as well. Now, um, you know, if you think about what do you know what the first injury prevention program was, like the very first thing ever. Now, I I stand to be corrected, but one of the, one of the first papers at least was in the eighties where Jan Ekstrand showed that if you warm up before a football training session, you reduce your risk of. Can you think how absolutely re- ludicrous it sounds now not to warm up like not to do a warm-up for a team before they actually engage in their training now and that wasn't practice you know back then and and acknowledging that sport wasn't yet professional and and all those components but so i do think there's really really uh, really good examples where we have had prevention now um maybe the answer is yes and and uh not not be the scary you know, like we're going to do the set of exercises at the end of a two-hour training session that's going to prevent your injuries. I mean, who wants to do that? For me, the answer lies in incorporating this in the athlete's training that they're going to do. it. So the S&C coach, your athletic performance team, they're the ones that need to help you understand how this maps in. It's a little easier in, in a sport like rugby where we really can only play, at the elite level at least, you only play once a week, really. You know, you can't really have a midweek game where... In football, the, the number of matches now, the, con, the match congestion now is just ridiculous. So, um, And the athletes are asked to perform constantly. So it's a much harder game for that, that team, the conditioning staff, to actually keep athletes healthy and, and ready to perform, I, I would argue, and then to build these uh, other measures in. But even our injury, like, uh, I think the most common prevention exercise is probably Nordic hamstring exercise. Um, and uh, uh, and I, I, I know it reasonably well. But there's really nice studies now from Denmark, from Germany, to show that it has a, p- a performance benefit. So that's it, right? We, you've we jumped, want to do stuff. You've jumped the gun, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, and, and I think there are loads of good ways to, to get there. But um, but that's what we're trying to do. So, so yes... Uh, I think we shouldn't abandon the idea of injury prevention. There's still good ways for us to do that. And, you know, if you read Carolina Bolling's work, and then, sorry, so actually Caroline Finch and Alex Donaldson, and then, you know, the the recent stuff from from the Netherlands by Effort Verhagen and Carolina Bolling, understanding the context, understanding the role of the organization, understanding the role of the athlete in all of this and how we communicate this is just so important to actually have successful um, implementation. So in Monaco, effort showed us that we have an unbelievably large publication bias towards injury prevention research. So we really kind of just publish the stuff that that works, that looks good. And we need to understand that often it fails and often we've missed a component or components that would have made it successful. And we need a, a definitely need to understand that better um, and, and pay attention to it incorporate it into what the athlete needs to do for their sport skills performance and and allow our athletic performance team to really incorporate incorporate that or the physio ever like handles that in your team 
to really incorporate that. I think that's the the, the way this becomes successful. Um, and a lot of it, you know, is is common sense stuff. So I think um, uh, um, we know that um, exposure to high speed running is probably a good idea if you want to run fast, right? So and uh, figuring out how that fits into your schedule is is the important bit. Um, and how much, how little you should do, in which zones you have to live. I think that all comes with experience and understanding what each individual and each team um, it, it needs to to, uh, to deliver on match day. Mentioned Nordics a few times. We're going to dive in. <clears throat> I had Frank on sure. the podcast that you've that you've have listened to, and I wanted to get your your take on the on the whole situation because it. I mean, it, as as all these kind of things, they they get taken to social media and everyone everyone piles in, and it all becomes from the outside. It just becomes a little bit um, amusing for those on the outside, but I'd like to get your your take on the the situation. Well, yeah, like I, <laughs> um, so Nordics. It's interesting that this one exercise has, has just mm. got so much attention, it is. isn't it? Um, the first the first published thing I could find on Nordics was written in 1820 by a guy called Geo Taylor. On, on, on protecting your health and Nordics is a good exercise to um, um, to use, right? This little Oxford booklet, I, I can't remember. So that's 200 years ago, um, and we're still kind of debating. It's it's incredible when we wrote that systematic review, um, uh, which um, and you know credit to my co-authors Rod Whiteley and Fergal Bean, um, we actually started off saying, you know what, like what's the clinical question? You know, if I'm a clinician, uh, what what do I want to know? What is the the, the the question I want to answer? And simply put, like if I use this thing, will it work? Right. So instead of following the normal systematic review r- rules and meta analyses rules, we kind of broke them. So we just, we included everything we could find that has in, that has used or included Nordics in their prevention program to see if it is effective. Now. That's not how you should do it, right? But we're okay with that, and we, we try to build things into the into the analysis to to keep ourselves honest. And to to be quite frank, I thought that would show it up. Like so, you know, one or two of these studies that has that doesn't see an effect or or um, that that isn't isn't um, uh, effective will will probably show us that Nordics isn't a good way to go. But nothing did. Like the overall effect. Um, was maintained even when we started systematically removing different papers. So the difference between the clinical heterogeneity, which is what we see, if you're if you're a practitioner in a practice somewhere, you know, in 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 the world, you'll see people of different different genders, different ages, different populations walk into your clinic with different musculoskeletal injuries, and you have to decide what you're going to do with them. So is this something you want to use? So that clinical heterogeneity, we're quite comfortable with. The statistical heterogeneity is something that obviously means that you have to interpret the results with some matter of caution. So we showed up the biases. We did a sub-analysis for the the, the uh, randomized control trials only. So re- to, to some degree, thought that this would be the last static review ever written <laughs> about Nordics, and we can put that to bed. Now, in the title of the paper, I should mention this, uh, we said halves injuries, right? So that's relative risk. So if you're paying attention so far, um, you'll know that that's not absolute risk. So Fionn Butner, uh, Mark Rowe, uh, Eamon Delahunt, and Fionn Butner wrote a really nice paper. It's called Theory on Relativity. 
And um, if you apply that to your base risk, it doesn't really change that much because your base risk has to be quite, again, you know, has to be quite significant. So they and they had they, they wrote it in a little bit more sophisticated way, but essentially the difference between absolute and bad. So your your absolute risk is not going to change dramatically. So if you see ten hamstring injuries in your team, and let's say we can be reductionist about this, and and it's only going to be Nordics that's going to influence this, you can't expect half uh, like five to to disappear, right? Not ignore, and then there's all this other complexity that comes into how an injury might occur. So, um, I, you know, Fra- Franco and, and, and Alan and um, Martin, the, 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 the paper is really good and they're absolutely right. They've written methodologically, they've written a really good paper. And I think their main, their main concern was that people are, are, uh, have this high expectation of what this one exercise can deliver um, and that we don't really appreciate the uncertainty that comes with this. So I think they've done a great job to highlight those two things. We were quite worried that we messed up the data extraction. So looked at it and they they, they got all data from the authors directly. So great, like much better data analysis. Um, and then uh, we didn't include in one of the studies, the group that didn't do the exercise, because we think you have to take the pill for it to, to be useful. So if, you, if you're not doing them, they can't possibly work, right? So that's an intention to treat uh, uh, um, issue, uh, uh, and I'm 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 happy to cons- I'm happy to stand by our our approach to that. Now, um, the funny thing is that we, we kind of end up in the same place, right? They make graded rec- or or careful recommendations in only football. Uh, we say use it with care because different individuals and populations will react differently. It's pretty much the same message, I'd say, and the point variability doesn't really change. Like it it remains around that. Uh, um, 50% reduction. Although, like uh, like I said, their emphasis on uncertainty is is certainly helpful, and I, I hope that that expectation is 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 something that people um, that that most practitioners now are comfortable with. Like we're never going to be 100% effective, um, and that's the difference between efficacy and eff- um, um, effectiveness, right? So moving from the lab to real life. Is, there's just so much that you have to try and incorporate for that you can't in the lab. So these studies, um, as well as they are performed, can never really sub- substitute what happens in real life. And then there are all these other complexities. So I think um, we're in a good place to say, use them. Right? They're a good exercise to use. If you, if you, if you, you can use RDLs or whatever you need to um, create some eccentric overload. Like there are loads of good options. This is a good one, and I think we can put that to bed. So if I'm a young clinician. If I'm wondering about this, I'd say um, I think this is one really good option for you to drive home. Um, at the elite level, that's harder to do. Although studies in Denmark have shown that it is possible, and each athlete is different, so make sure that you're still reasoning around what you're trying to get from the athlete or what you're expecting the, the exercise to produce, so that your, your athlete is benefiting from your intervention. So, is there is there <laughs> going back to risk again? Is there a risk that doing Nordics is harmful? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can expand, but the reality, like there's no convincing evidence that you're going to create harm. I think one of the, Christian mentions this in a, in a podcast he did with Frank, like one of the original exercises had doing like 70 reps or something, right? Of course, if you do any eccentric exercise, if, with that number of repetitions, you're going to have delayed onset of muscle soreness or even some proper damage. Like, I mean, that's just way too much, right? So there's a way to do it. 
And once you get there and you can maintain it, it's actually a pretty neat exercise to use, right? Now, we there's so much conjecture around being it being hip based or knee based or long lever. All of that I think kind of mutes the point that this is an effective thing to do. And in some scenarios, it's probably the the more effective thing to do, right? The the more appropriate choice for some athletes than for others. Um, um, nothing beats running fast. So if you want exposure for your hammies, like make sure you you're including like exposure to high speed running. But um, but as an exercise to and again like what what are we trying to do? We're trying to make sure that you're um, able to perform right. So so there's no harm I, I I can I can think of or no study that has demonstrated significant harm by doing this exercise. Of course, some athletes have had bad experiences or uh, it's been implemented poorly, and then you do have like just like a, a, an interesting. Uh, um, 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 myth that's been built around this one exercise but um really they're 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 a good option um if you do them well and if you give yourself a little bit of time and you um you implement them well they're a really easy exercise to maintain and to maintain that benefit from so um yeah i i think they're part of our they're part of our uh, uh core group of 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 um robustness exercises and and i think that'll remain is there any particular uh, population where they wouldn't be appropriate. Well, even if you look at the data from our systematic review, um, the, it hasn't been shown to be effective in in women. So, you know, like you could argue, like, well, then we won't use them. But there are probable reasons why, um, uh, you know, that they potentially haven't been shown to be effective in women. And I think one of the things are that. Um, uh, as we're finally getting to a place, and we're probably far away from women being given the same level of exposure to professional sports from an early age, uh, we're going to see a shift in injury patterns. So, um, so that, that especially those developmental pathways that um, that's going to give uh, younger women a greater opportunity to gain those exposures um, at a younger age. Or at a de- through a developmental phase, I think is going to shift what we see. So um, even though they haven't been shown to be effective, like if you're training a female athlete, you're going to try and find an exercise to create eccentric overload to strengthen their muscle, right? I think this is a pretty good option. Um, so that, that that's really it for me. So you can have there's others, but this is a good option. And so I would. I can't think of another, if any real population, we, we even, we try, we looked at it at the Aspire Academy uh, with youth athletes um, to see if there's any big shifts. And of course, as you get older, you get heavier and as you get heavier, you get stronger. And as you get stronger, you produce more force, right? So you saw all of that natural ability. We didn't find a difference between chronological age and, and maturation. So you can actually probably just use chronological age and, and go for it. And because it's a, it's a self-regulated body weight exercise. There really is um, a little downside, um, unless, of course, you're implementing it poorly. So, um, so I think it's still like a really good option across different populations, even in populations where we haven't seen a dramatic uh, preventative effect. I would still use it as an exercise where I know I get some strengthening benefits, uh, which leads to hopefully to some performance outcomes. When you say implemented incorrectly or poorly, is that just too much volume or would there be any other aspects that you would consider not ideal when implementing I think you, 
Yeah, like you have to think a little bit about technique, I guess. But um, I mean, uh, you don't uh, you don't have to think about it too hard, right? So, um, uh, but there is a um, a bit of player education around that. So, helping them understand what eccentric exercise is and that you can expect a little bit of soreness the next day and why there's a benefit to that, how we're building recovery, probably not only volume but frequency. So if you're having for trying to, to squeeze it in too close together and not allowing for that um, uh, um, recovery uh, post-exercise as well, then you might also um, really have a sub-maximal sub, uh, sub effect, which isn't really how the ex- well any eccentric exercise is designed, right? So I think um, there's, there's probably a little bit around frequency, volume, and technique. So to pay attention to all of those, um, I wouldn't say one stands out, but but certainly making sure that you're doing it properly, uh, not doing it too fast at the right frequency and at the right volume, um, and then giving enough time. I think the Aussies have shown us that you need about two weeks at least, probably um, four weeks is more ideal to really allow that uh, effect to start being maintained, and from there you can really switch to maintenance um, kind of sets. So even two sets of four, two sets of eight, was it, a, a week? You know, that's two sets of four a week. So that's eight. That's eight Nordics a week. I think that's that's pretty good bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you said this. You thought this could be the last systematic review that you you do done and dusted, finished. Is this you out of the Nordic game now? Done. Or is the more to come? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I we'll we'll do experiments uh, that answers the questions we want to answer, and maybe that's a good you know kind of segue into. Um, I should have said that first, but systematic reviews are, are lit, literature summaries. They're not they're not original research. So now you have all these ingredients and you have to decide how you want to bake the cake. And of course, those decisions will determine what it looks like and how you slice it will determine what it, what it looks like. So I think uh, there's an underappreciation. We've built this weird dependency or, or value system around systematic reviews. Um, and Ifit Farahan, again, in, in Monaco, did a really nice job of flipping the evidence pyramid and just saying, like, should we pay attention to N equals 1 studies again? Case studies, case series, experiments in the lab uh, uh, or in the clinic, I should say. I, I think so. You know, we, we've moved so far away from that. And we've, we kind of forget that a lot of the time there's incredible value in just understanding how this worked for an individual and the learnings you take from that into the next set, into the next set, and they're not all, like, of course, it's not always the same, but I do think there's, it's important that we understand how we build the, uh, these different, um, um, how, we, how we appreciate different levels of evidence. And yes, absolutely methods matter. We, we, we had a really great process led by Rasmus Nielsen where we um, published the, Copenhagen, Copenhagen meeting on Methods Matters, co-published in BJSM and JOS. Um, so, of course, we, we need to understand how to perform experiments well and how to understand the, the different things that influence our outcomes. But I, I'm, I'm reluctant to throw out low-level evidence studies because there's sometimes just real important value in them. And then also, randomized controlled trials are not always the best way you know, to, to perform or to answer a question. <laughs> I'll refer to the, the, the great paper published in BMJ, kind of in their like special Christmas edition on 
the lack of evidence, well, there's certainly no systematic reviews and very, well, zero randomized controlled trials demonstrating the value of wearing a parachute when jumping out of an aeroplane. And so, you know, we just, should you use them? We, we just have zero evidence from the literature that you should be using a parachute. Nobody's ever run an experiment. You know, the funny thing about that, like even with smoking, we don't have randomized controlled trials for smoking. Who is going to do that? <laughs> so let's take a group, like let's take a thousand 11-year-olds. You guys smoke for the next 30 years. You guys don't. And we'll see what happens with your cancer. I mean, that, like we wouldn't do that now, right? Because it satisfies um, uh, the... Um, the, the um, forgot the full name, like Hill criteria for how we look at evidence, right? So sometimes we can make logical deductions around these things and we don't need randomized controlled trials. The point I'm trying to make, and I, I, sorry it's taken so long, is to say that, you know, we, we really need to understand what is the question we're asking? How are we best served in answering that? And and what is the, how do we look at our results objectively? So yes, I think this is true, but there's lots of uncertainty around it. That's fair. You know, that's, that's an okay place to be. And perhaps we should be a little more comfortable, especially in sports and exercise medicine, and, and even more so in the elite side of things, with volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. You know, that, that VUCA system, I really think we, we, we live in that space. Um, and that is, uh, being an elite sports and exercise medicine practitioner really is being comfortable with those components. Good place to finish. Good place to round up there. Anyone that wants to get hold of that systematic review or get hold of anything else, any other work that you've done, what's the best place, Nicole? Um, you're welcome to get in touch on ResearchGate. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Nicole van Dijk, uh, although I'm less active there um, these days. But, uh, but any of those three, and I'm, I'm happy to respond. Our systematic review is open access in BJSM. So welcome, go and have a look at that. Uh, um, yeah, so happy, happy to share any and any of these resources that's useful. Um, but yeah, it's a real privilege, and and, and thank you for uh, for having me on, Rob. My pleasure. Great to chat, and look forward to more chats in the future. Great. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. We're on 388, and Nickel, I think, has probably been on my list since about episode 100. So it was great to get him on and get such an insight into what's going on at Irish rugby and injury prevention. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Look forward to chatting to you next week and the weeks coming with some great guests from the world of sports performance.